0: I agree. And Kyle, we're also grateful for this body of believers who serves us. Thank you, worship team. Good morning. You doing okay? You know, we are a month into this uh, series that we're calling Clarity. And uh, so it seems like it'd be worth it for me to at least ask a question. How's your vision so far? Clearer? A little bit clearer? You know, for some of us, as we walk through this, particularly right now, we're walking through the Gospels of uh, Luke and Matthew in our Clarity Devotional. Some of us are finding that we're getting, hopefully, uh, the goal is starting to penetrate. Remember, the goal of the whole series is we just want to see a little bit more clearly who Jesus is and what he does. So occasionally through this year, you're going to have some light flashes that come on and insights you've not had before. Sometimes that happens. Most often, you know what it's like? A dimmer switch. Just gradually turning up. And the more we begin to engage the process of looking at who God is and what he does through his word, we find ourselves looking over the shoulder over the last 30 days and saying, I just feel, I just feel like I see him a little better. That's the hope. But let me give you a promise. If you get a little more clarity of Jesus, guess What? you will also get a little more clarity of yourself. And that can be a really comforting thought sometimes. And that can also be a really convicting insight sometimes. And so this morning in an episode of Jesus' Life, we're gonna look at two episodes wrapped around one central issue, and the issue is the Sabbath. Now let's set the stage before we open up Luke. When we talk about the Sabbath... Usually we hear it with modern Gentile ears, don't we? We tend to think of the word Sabbath means take a day off. Any day will do, just take a day off. But that is not how a Jew in Jesus' day would have understood the Sabbath. They knew that the Sabbath was specifically the seventh day of the week. By the way, not Sunday, but Saturday. Uh, and so they understood that on that seventh day of the week, it was required by the law, by God's law, that you disengage from work so that you could engage God and others in a whole different way than you did the other six days of the week. And they never heard the Sabbath as good self help advice, ever. They knew that the Sabbath was one of God's Ten Commandments, not ten really good suggestions for life improvement, but actually Ten Commandments and how to walk with Him. In fact, it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It's even the longest, most detailed of the Ten Commandments. It's found in Exodus 20, verse 11, where we get the list of the Ten Commandments. And in there, it says, God says, remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. Just so we make sure he's clear. He says, you or your son, bummer, or your daughter, Or your male servant, or your female servant, or even your cattle, or the resident foreigner who might even be in your employee, who's in your gates. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. He set that day apart as holy. You know, the first three of the Ten Commandments is talked directly about our relationship with Yahweh, with God. The last six of the Ten Commandments talk mostly about our relationship with others. By the way, I think that's the reason Jesus says you can sum up the whole law with love God and love others. He knew he was summarizing everything in the Ten Commandments. Well, what I think is interesting is that the Sabbath fits right in the middle of that section of love God and love others, and it acts almost like a bridge, enabling us to engage God and engage one another differently. It's almost as though God's giving us a gift to live out his commands. And a Jew would, would never hear that as anything else but being huge to them because it was huge to Yahweh. So big, it was actually the covenant sign of their people group as a nation. In fact, Exodus chapter 31, you see, he, the Lord says to Moses, tell the Israelites, surely you must... Not should, must keep my Sabbaths for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So Sabbath was so serious for the Jewish people that the next few verses that we could have put on the screen after this spell out three verses that it's actually a capital offense for breaking it. What? The death penalty? For breaking the Sabbath? God, have you gone a little overly dramatic on this? No, this sign was precious to them. By the way, we have signs in our culture that are precious to us. I see someone burning an American flag, that, that offends me. If you served as a veteran or even in combat, you're hyper offended. Because you know that when you mess with the sign and disrespect the sign, you're actually disregarding the substance itself, right? So it was for the Jewish people with Sabbath. Why lay that out? Because that creates the tension of what Jesus steps into in his conflict with the Pharisees. So we go to the New Testament. We look for some clarity, Lord. In Luke chapter six, verse one. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples picked up some heads of wheat, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God, that was the tabernacle. And he took and he ate the sacred bread, that was the show bread that only the priests could eat, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So on a Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, they're hungry, the disciples pop the head of barley or wheat, we don't know which, they rub it in their hands to thresh it, you know, to blow some chaff on it, and they, they snack. And the Pharisees see that and say, you broke the law. Whose law? If it's God's law, we have a problem because we now follow a savior who is a rebel against God and his law. Whose law? Not the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 actually spelled out and said it was lawful to walk through the grain field after it's been harvested, or even at the edges before harvest and to nourish yourself and pick from the grain if you need it to. So whose law did they break? The Pharisees' law. That's not a minor deal. And I know it's so hard, but if you can project yourself back in a mental time machine and go back 2,000 years to the... To the Middle East, and you were Jewish living in Jerusalem, you would not have been able to see the difference between the Pharisees' law and God's law. Now, I know when we read the New Testament, we look at the word Pharisee and we immediately say villains of the story, and indeed they opposed our Lord. But that's not how we would have seen them 2,000 years ago. See, in Jesus' day, there were four political parties. I know that's hard to imagine in a two party system like ours. But much like ours, they span the spectrum from liberal to conservative. And on the far left-hand side, the most liberal would have been the Herodians. These were the, the people who aligned themselves with King Herod and Rome. The truth is they used religion as a tool to gain political power. These are religious people. Let's play that card so we can get the political capital we need with Herod and Rome. A little bit... Uh, still on the liberal side, was the spiritual elitists, the a ruling minority party called the Sadducees. Didn't hold to a literal interpretation of the Old Testament anymore. Also kind of capitulated to the culture around them. At the far other side, the right-hand side, would have been a movement called the Essenes. They were the separatists. They withdrew from the culture around because they fiercely wanted to protect the law of God and their obedience to it, and they saw the culture is going to you-know-where in a handbasket, and so they just backed off from it. But in the middle of that chaos was the Pharisees, the largest, most influential, most popular ruling party. If they had had democratic elections, which you didn't have in a dictatorship like Rome, they would have been in the White House all the time they were popular because they held on to a high view of the Old Testament. They loved God's word. They actually believed in the hope of the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. And they, they began to help the people understand that God's law has to be fiercely embraced if we're going to see God favor us with his coming of the Messiah and restoring of our land. The Pharisees' love for the Old Testament is much of why we can read the Old Testament today and trust that it was God's word originally given because they protected this book, not just to each word, but to each letter. The people followed them. They trusted them. And the Pharisees show up and they believe they've caught Jesus with his hands in the cookie jar. Remember the question, why do you do what is against the law on the Sabbath? Well, again, if you ask the Old Testament the written word of God, they did not break any laws. But if you ask the Pharisees, they broke their interpretations of the law and the Pharisees could see no distinction between their interpretations and God's revealed word. In fact, a Jew in that day said they lived by two laws. The written law, which was the Old Testament, Torah, but also the oral law, which was the rabbi's interpretation of the law. And those two became commingled. So the written law, the Old Testament says, rest on the seventh day, don't work. The rabbis in their oral law stepped up and said, we need to help our people understand what work is. So for example, if you're carrying a burden, a load on your shoulder on the Sabbath day, is that work? Well, they had to spell that out. What constitutes a burden? And so they wrote a collection of rabbis' teachings. It's actually collected in a book called the Mishnah. You know, the Mishnah had 24 detailed chapters on what was work about in the Sabbath. That's a lot of work to find out how to rest, isn't it? And in there, they said, you can't carry a burden. So in the Mishnah, it says, a burden is food equal in weight to one dried fig, enough wine for mixing one goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put uh, on one wound, oil enough to anoint one person, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write one note, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make one pen. I haven't even gotten started in chapter one of the 24 chapters. And on and on and on, the burden was to figure out how to rest. The Mishnah itself says it this way, The rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and the rules are many. And Jesus sees that the heart of the Sabbath has been buried beneath tons of interpretation of the law. And he tries to reach in and reclaim the purpose of that and pull it out of the mountain of interpretation And so he does that by directing their attention to human need. And he tells this story out of the Old Testament that seems a little bit random, but it's 1 Samuel 21. And he says, don't you remember, the law says that no one can eat this sacred bread that only the priests can eat. But David, when his companions, they were starving, they came upon it and he took the bread and he gave it to his companion to meet a real emergent, uh, urgent human need. And what he was trying to do is to say, listen, The law was there for human flourishing. Human beings weren't just created for the law's flourishing. And he tells a story about human need and the law and he tries to drive that back to the Sabbath and his own disciples who had their hunger in in that day. The Pharisees couldn't see it. He's reclaiming the heart. In fact, if you look at Matthew's account of this exact same story, Matthew chapter 2 says it this way. He adds one sentence that the Luke, the gospel writer, doesn't add. Then he said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath, for this reason. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that is the heart of Sabbath law. And the Pharisees totally missed it. And by the way, once you take away the heart of any law, All you're left with is a large list of oppressive rules. The Pharisees, they couldn't see the difference between the heart of a law and a list of rules. And so Jesus takes advantage of the next episode and tries to press the point a little deeper. You see in verse six, the story continues. On another Sabbath, what do you think? The very next Sabbath, seven days later, But recent enough that this episode is in their minds, right? On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now a man was there whose right hand was was withered. That would be the hand you would need to work, to extend fellowship to your friend and neighbor, to embrace your children and your grandchildren and your wife. The experts in the law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because they wanted people to be healed and set free? Oh, no. So that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, Get up. Stand here. So he rose and stood there. Episode 1. The Pharisees provoke the discussion about the Sabbath, don't they? Notice who's provoking the conflict in episode two. Yeah. The Savior who wants to deliver us. Jesus initiates. He knew the Pharisees, knew their heart. That's the divine nature of God. He knew what was in their heart, knew they were on the war path, and that they were watching Jesus closely. By the way, does that shock you? Their eyes are wide open and their heart is closed. It's a dangerous combination, men and women. Open eyes and a closed heart, well, that'll not only kill you, that'll make it dangerous for anybody else who's not blessed enough to have to live with you. You become a lethal combination and toxic spiritually with open eyes and a closed heart. Jesus knows this. And so he uses this one man's physical need to show the Pharisees their spiritual need. Yes, he's going to bless this man, but this man is now his visual aid. And in a crowded Sabbath synagogue, he sees the man with a withered hand and he could have gone to him and healed him there, but instead he calls him up, out from behind the coffee pots over here where Abel and Bart are sitting, and he says, come here. The man makes his way up. And in verse 9, he looks at the Pharisees and he asks a question. Then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees over here, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? And the Pharisees don't say a word. They lock eyes. They probably squint in anger. And they see the on the inside, refusing to budge. So Jesus breaks the stalemate. He moves next, verse 10. And after looking around at them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. So is it lawful to bless or to do or to destroy on the Sabbath? Jesus chooses to bless. He blesses the man who can now work, who can hug his probably sweet granddaughter. I say that because I was hugging on mine last night in church. Who can grip, grip the right hand of fellowship with his neighbor and who walks away changed? But he was also doing good to the Pharisees. He wasn't just healing a hand for the man, he was revealing the heart to the Pharisees. And that's what they needed most. Folks, the battle here is not over the rules, the battle in Luke chapter 6 is over who rules. Will it be Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the God who actually gave this Sabbath law, in other words, the one who has all authority, or will it be the Pharisees who interpret the law of God and add to it their list and then put that list on people's backs and lord that list over them? That's the tension point. And these two Sabbaths teach us two important lessons. The first lesson is absolutely essential to spiritual life. The second lesson is just important for spiritual health. Let's look at the main thing first. The lesson that's essential for spiritual life. It's the heart of legalism. And that's what Jesus is going after here. He's not even quibbling about the seventh day and what could or could not be done. He's going after the closed heart of the Pharisees. Legalism is not just a Pharisee problem, is it? Legalism is a human problem. I've got a buddy who says that legalism is as natural to the human heart as oxygen is to the lungs. You know how you know you struggle with legalism? You're alive. (laughs) Everything about legalism is a way of saying that somehow, somehow that my life changes from the outside in. In other words, it's an outside in religion instead of an inside-out faith. Now listen, legalism is not the same as strong convictions or good discipline. No, having good habits, having strong conviction, uh, having a good sense of self-discipline, those are noble. But believing that you can change and become a new kind of person by what you do from the outside in, that's the religion of the Pharisees. As opposed to what God changes in us from the inside out. Legalism believes that we become right before God based upon what we do. As a result, it tends to minimize sin and see sin as only external actions only. And this is why the Pharisees are the poster children for legalism. It's their code that says you must keep the law. In this case, it's the Sabbath law. And if you keep the law, you can make yourself right before God. So if I'm righteous based upon what I do, what does that mean about you if you don't do what I do? You're wrong. Or at least maybe not as right as me. Do you see how legalism always seeks to justify ourselves and it cannot help do anything but judge other people? I've shared this diagram before in a Bentonville community worship, but I think this one fits this passage spot on. All of us as human beings have a framework of who we believe God is and what he does and who we believe we are and what we think human beings should do. The challenge is that legalism, or maybe you could substitute the word religion, or you could substitute what Paul calls it in Romans, works, or sometimes he calls it flesh, all of these are New Testament concepts that root the prime mover as ourself. In other words, the chart starts with what I do. And I grew up as a card-carrying member of the religion of if it's to be, it's up to me. And so, if I can buck up and improve myself enough, then I could become a good man. If I'm a good man, God might treat me with a lot of goodness. And if God treats me with a lot of goodness, He might actually love me. It all starts here. You know, I drew this chart for a Hindu friend who lives in Bentonville. I was sharing my own testimony talking about how I grew up in a Christian church where I really believed that somehow if I improved myself and lived righteously enough, although as a teenager, I'm just telling you that was a fluctuating target, okay? But if I lived righteously enough by my own standard that somehow I could be good enough, and if I was good enough, then God kind of embraces you and rewards you with maybe eternal life and some good stuff here and all the stuff that a God is supposed to sit around and do. And I drew this out and drew the arrows that way, moving uh, from the right to the left. And she stopped me and said, you're not drawing out your story. You're telling me the story of Hinduism. And I went, exactly. All religion is rooted in this kind of self-effort that wants to move and put God somehow in our obligation because of what we do. It's the opposite of both the truth and the grace of God. And Jesus well, John chapter one tells us he comes full of grace and truth, and so he comes to do and give us the int- only remedy there exists to change this. He flips the script. Same categories of doing life, but the gospel of grace is rooted in who God is. He is love. He is righteous and he is holy. He sees that we are separated from us in sin, and so in love, he moves at all cost to himself. And eliminates the sin and the death barrier between us and him. And that changes us, and he adopts us as daughters and sons, and then we start to live out the family habits. Yeah, the change happens from the inside out because of something called the gospel of grace. Grace is what softens our hearts to God, grace is actually what softens our hearts to one another. Grace is actually what brings lasting change in our actions as opposed to the turning over a new leaf that we do every new year and forgot about by February. Grace is what brings all of that. See, my work or my works does not justify me. Jesus' work justifies me. And this keeps me, therefore, from judging you. And when we miss grace, we miss the heart of God, we miss the heart of the gospel, we have no Clarity whatsoever. And our hearts grow hard. That's not my opinion. That comes right out of the text of the Pharisees' playbook. Mark's gospel tells the same story, but adds a little commentary on what's going on inside of the Pharisees. Mark's gospel in Mark 3, verse 5 says, After looking around at them, notice how Jesus is feeling at this moment. He's mad and he's sad looking around at him in anger, grieved. Why? Over the hardness of their heart. It was heartbreaking for him to see that in the Pharisees, but it angered him to see that that was preventing even the kind of blessing that would set a man free from his disability. Grieved and angered. He heals the man. And how do the Pharisees respond? I imagine everybody else in the synagogue is in awe of what Jesus can do. They have a little clarity. Who is he? What can he do? Pharisees have no clarity. So they'll go out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians. By the way, that would be the people they hated. Plotting with the Herodians as to how they could assassinate Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus' question. Is it lawful to bless or to destroy on the Sabbath? Well, we know the answer. Jesus chooses to bless on the Sabbath. Heals a man's hand, reveals their hearts, both of them good works. They choose to walk out and plan on how to destroy on the Sabbath. And they even pick their arch enemies to do it. Remember Thrays? The enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And so it is with them. So the clarity we need to see most in this little episode of Jesus' life is simply Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, there's gotta be more. No, that's a lot. Jesus is Lord. He has all authority. He is God. He gets to set the law that will free us so that we can enjoy life. But he's also this God of authority who sets the law that leads to rest. Sabbath life in him. How do we experience that? First, I think we have to receive the grace of Jesus, don't you? We don't want to analyze the grace of Jesus when we can set free from it. And so it means responding to Jesus Christ and believing that what he did on the cross, his death on the cross, paid for all sin, my past, my present, my future sin. I don't work myself out of the hole, he filled it in believing that his empty tomb, his resurrection, takes care of conquering the death problem we have. All of us this morning share two problems in common. We have a lot of different circumstances that manifest it, but the same root issues. We struggle with sin and we struggle with death. What did Jesus defeat? On the cross, he defeats sin, and in the empty tomb, he defeats death. And when we believe that that work becomes our work, we enter what the Bible calls the Sabbath rest of eternal life. We are saved by believing in that. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus as Savior and leader of our lives, there is a way that we can learn to enjoy the grace of God. And that might be actually by zeroing in on that word Sabbath itself. Remember Jesus said the Sabbath is not uh, 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 the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. That's the heart of the Sabbath. The heart of the Sabbath is it's God's gift for human flourishing. It was never one more taskmaster law. It was a way to free us. For the Old Testament Jews, it was a specific day, a Saturday. For those of us who because of what Jesus has done in the new covenant, do not live under the old covenant anymore. We're now free to to practice that Sabbath, that one and seventh day rest, any day you like. Could be Monday. If you work on Monday, I wouldn't suggest it. It's a career limiting move, okay? But the point is a one and seven rhythm of rest because it's still God's gift for flourishing. We need that. Our kids need that. If you don't believe me, ask their cell leaders, ask their teachers. The topic I hear all the time from our student ministry leaders are the anxiety level in kids is off the chart, particularly in Bentonville. Believing they don't need any rest. We can march them up the hill all day long. Yeah, we also see that the Sabbath's job is to realign us with God and others. So day of one and seven, push pause on work, so that a rhythm that God establishes allows us to regain clarity in life. For adults, we push the pause on our work. For kids, they push the pause on their work. At least for my 13-year-old still at home, their work is called school and their activities and household chores. And you just choose to push the pause. Listen, don't do this unless you can handle a lot of grace in your life. Unless you can handle rest. Don't do this. You might we're gonna live in a culture where if you say how you're doing, nobody says fine anymore. That was 20 or 30 years ago. You know, that was so 80s, right? Nobody says fine. We say what? Busy. Busy is the new fine. And then we begin to one up one another and talk about how frazzled and exhausted we are, which makes you really fine. It's almost as though if you responded to someone, you know, I, I, life's full, but I'm doing pretty well. I feel rested. There's margin in my life. I feel like my soul, my heart, my relationships are flourishing. People would look at you and ask, do, do you need some help? Because the good life is to be as frazzled as me. But we know that God gave us a gift to realign. And it is Sabbath and it is counterculture even, and maybe mostly, for followers of Jesus. Why did God give us the rhythm of rest, one in seven? Because he wants us to remind, be reminded and be refreshed. He wants us to be reminded of who he is. Sabbath actually says, I'm not the center of the universe. And by the way, for a recovering control freak like me, it was really hard. But to believe that God will still be God, while I sit and watch him do his thing. Sabbath is also a great refresher. Obviously, the scriptures tell us that. Sabbath is the gift to enjoy grace, not to earn it. You don't practice a one in seven day so that you get God's blessing. Oh, no, 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 no. In Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Sabbath is a way to pause and be renewed in that grace with more clarity. So what do you do with a passage on the Lord of the Sabbath? We get refreshed by the Sabbath rest he gives us. Look at how the writer of Hebrews says it as we close with this text. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Oh, Lord, I don't want to be the one who's been saved by much grace but falls short of enjoying it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us. And now we who have believed enter that rest. There remains then a Sabbath. Rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. The gospel of Jesus for you. He has finished the work. Rest in him.